Hey, welcome to the Harusa podcast. In today's episode, the perfume of civet cats, an radical and haunting account that has challenged conventional morality and thought since the dawn of humanity. I'm Moshe Shomron. Thank you for joining me in this exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. I had teased in one of my social media stories, table of contents from a book I recently received called Jewish Questions. It's written by Matt Goldish, published by Princeton University Press, and it's responsa, so questions that were asked to Sephardic rabbis in the early modern period, and it publishes the questions um, that were being asked to these Sephardic rabbis in the, in the Spain slash Middle East region, Greece, the Ottoman Empire. Persia, etc. Um, this question from the table of contents that drew my interest, caught my eye, was Egyptian Jews with civet cats. And this question was written in the mid-1500s. was sent to Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Castro in the mid-1500s in Egypt about civet cats. Now, I didn't even know, never had heard of civet cats, and I googled that. And they're stunning. The furs, they're like beautiful creatures. Uh, so what's the question about civet cats? So apparently, there's something called Algalia. Algalia, which in Egyptian, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, is a perfume. It's a musk and ambergris perfume that was a fragrance that could be extracted from the civet cat. And the standard practice of the day was, is if you wanted to buy the scent, you would first pay a sum of money to one of the cat owners, who would then give you the di- fragrance at a discount. So the question is, does this practice raise any concerns of taking interests? May your reward be multiplied by heaven. That's the uh, that's the question. Now, interest, of course, is super discouraged, disparaged by the Torah. It's, it's very uh, severe, taking interest. So the question here is, it has a scent of, of interest in here because when, when you get the money early you're getting the money early without first giving the product so that cash advance um, can potentially be considered uh, money because you're getting extra benefit of having the cash before you deliver the product so that's really the heart of the question now apparently in in egypt in the 1500s this was an unusual practice to prepay for something to pre-order something but Nowadays, this is a lot more common, pre-ordering something. You pre-order a new book release on Amazon, etc. I pre-order all the time. You give cash advance. Um, but in Egypt, this was a novelty in the mid-1500s. The answer, Chacham, Rabbi Yaakov, Castro, and Ole Yaakov, he permits the practice. But fascinating uh, question. There's a bunch of other ones. Maybe we'll go through them sometime. Feel free to reach out hear some more. We established the metaphor of the library in yesterday's episode, Identities and Libraries, of the book, you pull it off the shelf in the library, the old book detailing on page after page after page, the story of you, the story of you, where you come from, what your predecessors and ancestors stood for, lived for, died for, their values, their ethics, and how that creates this call to action for you to write your own pages you reach the header 
with your name on it. And now you're going to continue to be a chain in the story, to be a letter in the scroll. Or will it stop with you? And to calibrate your page, when you're writing your page, you want to understand the first page. Because the first page is going to have much insight on where the journey goes. Now, this journey, really unique in that, it was really the first time attempt in history. First time there was ever an attempt in history to moralize power. The power could be subjugated to morality. Right over might. Right over might. No people has ever, has ever insisted so consistently, consistently and strongly that the, the there's an overarching sovereignty of the moral imperative. The historian Paul Johnson writes that the Jewish vision became the prototype for many similar grand designs for humanity. Therefore, the Jews stand right at the center of the perennial attempt to give the human life the dignity of a purpose. Human life, the dignity of a purpose. Now, where did this story start from? What's the first page in the story? Nearly 4,000 years ago, two people, two people, Abraham and Sarah, begin a journey based on a directive that they hear, Lech Lecha. Go on a journey. Go to yourself. Go for yourself. From the land. From your birthplace. From your father's home. The land that I will show you to the promised land. The journey begins now. Abraham and Sarah lived a pretty undramatic life. Relatively undramatic. Um, they longed for a child for a while. And they were eventually were granted one. They were caught up in the events of their time, some famines, a couple of local battles, the destruction of Sidom, some cities. That was pretty intense, I guess. But they weren't really like heroic figures. Some of the Greek legends. Abraham's no king, no warrior, no superhuman strength. For the most part, he and Sarah lived quietly far away from the arenas of power and the like. What was special about them is that they had courage to be different. Instead of worshipping the idols of the day, they pledged their loyalty to the creator of heaven and earth. They weren't like their neighbors. Now, when their neighbors were threatened, they prayed for them, they fought for them, sure. But they didn't live the same way. They had different values. They taught their kids, they taught their households differently. They didn't worship nature, power. They didn't believe the world is just blind powers that, that clash. And they rejected a lot of the pagan myth things that were prevalent at the time. They stood on one side, the whole world on the other. Now, where did it start from? Where did, this, where, where did it come from? There's a fascinating midrash, a fascinating midrash. It says the following on this opening Opening uh, introduction that we have in the Torah, Abraham and Sarah, Lech Lecha, the measure says, to what may this be compared? To a person walking and the person sees a palace in flames. And the person says, who's the owner of this palace? And the owner calls out and says, I am. So to Abraham sees the world and says, who's the creator of this world? And the Holy One, Basti Hashem, sticks out and says, it's me. I created this. That's the measure. 
This is very enigmatic. It's it's a drop cryptic, and it's understandable why people, some great thinkers of our day, made a mistake here and misinterpreted it. A couple of them. Number one was idea Avram Yeshua Heschel proposes this that palace and flames is a palace full of light. Palace full of light, a mystical vision that Avram finds Hashem in the light within the light. More popular, Louis Jacobs and many others call this the argument from design. This is how many people understand it. And again, it's not true to the passage. And I think it's uh, isn't entirely accurate. And they understand that it's like the watchmaker. If you see a watch with all its gears and they're all interconnected, it's statistically impossible for it to have created itself by mistake. There had to be a watchmaker. And so too, Avraham looks at the world and he sees this mansion, he sees this home, and he says, huh, had to come from somewhere. Didn't just appear by itself. Ah, it must be God. He founds monotheism. Now, this is not true to the text. As you look at the text, it says the palace was on fire. Now, if it was just about the palace and the argument of design, then why does it have to be on fire? What does the fire have to do with anything? So that can't be what the Midrash is teaching. Even though both of these ideas might be true, but they're not necessarily what the Midrash is saying. So, what is the palace on fire? The palace symbolizes the world. Right? So, yeah, Avram sees the design. He sees photosynthesis. He sees physics. He sees astronomy. He sees biology. He sees science. And he says, this is awesome. This is epic. This is unbelievable. There's so much wisdom. There's so much unity. This, It's mind-blowing. Whoa! But then he sees this. The flames. The palace is inflamed. He sees the violence out in the world. He sees the injustice. He sees evil and he says, what is going on? The palace is aflame. Who, where's the owner of the palace? How does he let it just burn like there? If there's a God, why is it burning? Why is there a fire? There was always two approaches. Before Avraham, before the Jewish revolution. First approach was that God isn't real. The palace isn't real. The fire is real. Everything's random, clashing, survival of the fittest, might over right. Therefore, the evil, the injustice, yeah, because there's no God. There's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as justice. That was one approach. The second approach said, no, 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 the opposite. There's no such thing as evil. God is real. And therefore, anything that you see as evil, you perceive as evil, it's it's really just good that's cloaked. Cloaked by evil. It's not it's not actually evil. There's really good within it. You just don't understand it right now. If you understood, you would be God. You don't really understand it. It must be some good. It's to teach you something. It's to teach them something, etc. Now, Judaism comes and says, <laughs> one second, one second. There's truths in both of these. The truth in both of these. Evil is real. Evil is real, but Hashem is real also. So then how do you combine the two? How do you live with both? That's what Avraham's seeing. That's what Avraham's struggling with. Avraham, Sarah, the Jewish people, begin not with the answer, but with the question. 
the protest, the discontent of why is there injustice in the world of Hashem. Please, enlighten. What's going on here? That's Avram's call. He's like, what's happening here? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much injustice? And Hashem says, very enigmatically, I am here. That's his answer. What's the answer? I'm here? What Hashem is saying is that I can't put the fire out. I'm here, but I can't put it out. That's up to you. That's up to you because the whole point, the whole direction of creation of the human story is that we've got to be partners here. I created you, but I can't create humanity. Then it's just a bunch of robots. If Hashem stops some guy from shooting up a concert, then the guy never had any autonomy, was never actually free, was never individual. A finite being is not free in a world in which an infinite power intervenes to prevent her from acting or facing the consequences consequences of her action. And it had to be this way, because it's not just a matter of free will, but it's the very essence of morality. And the Jewish understanding of morality, morality is neither objective, subjective. Right, there are always two approaches. There's always two answers. Morality is objective. It's in the world of facts. It's natural law. It's in the structure of society. General accepted conventions. Morality is to conform. And then the second one is that morality is subjective. It's in the private domain personal emotion, your desires, your inner intuitions. There's no moral truth beyond what you feel. Be true to yourself. Now, adherence to, both, to either of these views yielded destruction. Yielded destruction because nature is blind often, cruel. Societies could be oppressive. Conventions could be unjust where the moral thing is not to conform. Morality demands to, to protest. But if you go the other way and you're only true to yourself and you all decide, everybody decides on their own, <laughs> every single, you're not going to find any society, any community, all people have the same desires. So necessarily, there's going to be violence and manipulation on any society built on the principle that everybody do what's good in your own eyes. And Judaism morality is something else. It's covenantal. It's a partnership. It's a pledge. Just like a marriage. Think about a marriage. It's not a fact of nature, and it's not a private or subjective state, but it's a bond that's, the, that's created. It's created by declaration, it's created by marriage ceremony, but there's a word given, there's a word received, and it's honored by loyalty and trust. It's a, it's a pledge. It's a pledge. That's what morality is. It's when two free agents, when two free beings join together for a purpose. The covenant is what turns love into law and law into love. And it, it's the very heart of Judaism. It's the very heart of Torah. It's most perhaps audacious and least understood idea that in between heaven and earth, between infinite power and finite human beings, there can and is such a relationship. There's a real relationship. But in order for a relationship to be real, you need autonomy on both sides. It's got to be full acting. So if Hashem's going to intervene and put out the flames, you don't actually have free will. Then it's no longer an actual relationship that's a covenant it's based on two autonomous beings. Then it's just a puppet being controlled by a puppeteer. So that's Avram's vision. That's the beginning of the story. The tower in flames. The palace in flames. Seeing out the world how it is and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. 
we're the counter voice. We're saying, we got to put out these flames. We got to put out these fires. That's what Avraham is so worked up on. And he gets so pumped about. The question was asked this week. Someone asked, how is it possible to claim that Abraham and Sarah were the founders of monotheism? If you look at there's some other legends, Zoroastrianism, some other beliefs that also talk about monotheism that predates Abraham's time. The idea is, is that, no, no, it's a mistake. Abraham didn't found, found monotheism, but ethical monotheism. A monotheism that says there's a God, but there's human free choice too. There's a God that's beyond nature and it's up to us to create nature, to create humanity, to put out those flames. That's not going to happen by itself. It's not going to happen. The reaction to a terrorist attack can't just be, oh my gosh, I feel bad. Must have had a tough upbringing. The terrorist, right? Let's try to understand where it, come, where it came from and build bridges and things like that. We got to recognize, call out evil where it is and recognize it for the force it is and put out the flames, overcome evil with goodness. That's Avram's call. That's at the palace in flames. It's the very beginning of the story. And in every single circumstance in your life, as you go through that book taken off the shelf of the library, and you're reading each page, each generation, the battles, the struggles, the accomplishments were all this. We're all fighting to put out those flames. And any time that there's still evil in the world, anytime you see injustices, any times you see imbalances that are unfair, that means that we're still on the journey. We're not there yet. The destination, the ultimate goal of everything, messianic age, to say, is when the journey and destination twin up together. That's why Shabbat is met in Olam Shabbat is the messianic age, Yom Shekulo Shabbos. Where the process and the goal, the journey and destination become one. That the palace, the order in the world, is orderly. There's no chaos of the flames of the fire. That's the beginning of the story. By the way, this is the ultimate, the truest understanding of Tikkun Olam. To perfect the world under the sovereignty of Hashem. That's what Tikkun Olam is. In its true sense. To repair, to mend the world, to become partners in creation with Hashem. He created us. Now it's up to us to create humanity, to create godliness. Thousands of years later, it's still a revolutionary idea and it's still unfinished. And that's the call on us to realize that the flames of injustice, of violence, of oppression are not inevitable. Even though it's so common throughout world history, it's not inevitable. It's not written into the structure of the universe because... Even though it's so natural and seems so natural, Hashem's above nature. And therefore, because Hashem communicates with man, we too can defeat nature. Judaism is the revolutionary moment at which humanity refuses to accept the world that is. I think this ultimately provides such a powerful way of looking at the world, such a perspective. Because, especially in a time when there's so much 
division and struggle and disconnect out in the world of what's going on today. So you could view it the atheist lens that the palace isn't real and therefore everything's random and therefore survival of the fittest. So you better go out and push yourself to the front of the line of the vaccine or when you're in the grocery store at the beginning of the pandemic, you better take that last uh, roll of toilet paper and buy out the entire stock of macaroni. Because right, you got to survive and everything is random. There's no reason or purpose to others to hunker down for the long winter, but this is it. This is it, dude. You got to come out on top. No matter how many people you trample along the way. The other approach. That the fire isn't real. This submission. Islam. The very word Islam is to submit. To God's plan. Submit. This must be God's plan. You know what? It's fine. It's fine. This is what it is. But God must have wanted it this way. There's evil in the world. There's injustice. There's inequity. There's unfair inequity. Ah. Must be. Submit. Right. It must be for a reason. Uh, that person's suffering is for a reason. It's the second approach. But what Abraham introduced, what the Jewish people introduced, is that no, there's a fire, the world's on fire for us to put quell the flames. You see injustice. Don't start calculating why it's happening. Oh, you just randomly got caught in it. Or you deserve it. Or it must be a lesson for you. No, it's up to you to put out those flames. There's division in the world. There's disconnect. There's disharmony. That's for us. That's for us to go out, put it in the flames. What a, per, what a perspective. And it started with Avraham, but definitely still is the page. So when we're writing the page in the scroll, when we're filling out our own details, what flames are we putting out in our lives, in our own personal lives? Not only with other people, but flames within us. If you think about that as a, on an individual level, that we're all essentially, the human body is unbelievable source of, of everlasting wonder. It's incredible. The eyes and the millions of cells and cones and that it, it, it can make you drunk with uh with happiness, figuratively. I right? it's, it's there's so much complexity and unity and it's a palace. The body's a palace, but yet we're a flame. We're a flame because we have so much sorrow and, and stress and and disconnect and anxieties and disappointments and existential angst so it's the tower it's the the building that's on fire and either we could say yeah whatever life's random so get messed up tonight you'll be okay tomorrow now that song get messed up today you'll be okay tomorrow just one shot all right just drink it away Drink it away, liquor shop blues, the song is called. I drink away your sorrows. The other approach is like, no, you know what? It must be that I just have to, this is who I am. You settle, you become complacent. It's fine. I am, this is who I am. Yeah, who cares about it? Must be, I'm destined for this type of life. The Jewish approach is to say, no, no, no. Yes, there's a fire. It's real. Yes, there's a tower, a palace that's real. But it's up to you to go take the flames. And it's okay that there's flames there however they got there. But now, focus in the moment. Right now, what is there to do? Right? How, how did the flames come about? How could we eradicate them? Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed, before you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.